This morning, we're going to be looking in our series, God's Story, Our Story, continuing with the Gospel of Matthew by looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's the very popular story, of course, at this time of year, the story of the Magi, or maybe the wise men, the wise men and the Magi traveling hundreds of miles to visit and to find Christ who has been born the king of the Jews. The Gospel of Matthew has been quite shocking so far, hasn't it? We started two weeks ago by looking at chapter one and the beginning has all of the names that make up the genealogy of Jesus. And we saw that there was people included in the family of God, people included in the story of Jesus that doesn't seem like should be there. But God has other plans to redeem their past and to redeem their story and even allows their scandalous past to be a part of the Jesus story. Last week, we looked at what this, who this child is and what he came to do, that he is God in the flesh, that he is not another leader, another teacher who has come to point the way to God, but he comes and he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He is the incarnation. He is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, who has come to be with us but he has come to save us from our sins. And we continue our journey through the Gospel of Matthew by looking at chapter two. When we open God's word, there should be a leaning in. What do I mean by that? God has a word for us. When we read his word, it is God speaking to us. So we should be leaning in saying, God, what are you about to speak to us this morning? There should be a sense of urgency, a sense of us sitting on the edge of our seat saying, God, speak, speak to us weary sinners yet again today. Matthew chapter two, verses one through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, which is about five miles from Jerusalem, in the days of Herod, the king, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and all of the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's from the prophet Micah, written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. They opened their treasures and they offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way. 
and the grass withers and the flower continues to fade, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. These glorious words that the choir just sang over us. When we're listening to these words, or maybe when people are walking through the malls at Christmas time, do you think they have any earthly clue what's being sung? Let earth receive her king. The power of those words. No, they're thinking, I I liked it better when Michael Buble covered that song. They're not thinking at all about the power and the gravity. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. 2,000 years ago, when the king was born, it turned the world upside down. News began to spread literally hundreds of miles away, if not thousands of miles, that a king had been born in Bethlehem of Judea. And people came and they worshiped. Men from the east, we are told, wise men or magi traveled far to worship this one because the king has come. And when the king has, is born and the king comes into the world, it requires a proper response. And just as the wise men from the east came and bowed their knee and fell to their face and properly responded to the king, I want to ask you this morning, have you found the king? Have you found the true king that was born, the king of the Jews? Have you found this king, the Christ child, who comes and calls you to worship and calls you to bend the knee and calls you to fall on your face before him? Have you found the king? Matthew tells this glorious story of what happens with those who encounter the king. We see those that are seeking the king, We see those who are opposing the king. And lastly, we see those who are properly responding to this king, the king of kings and Lord of lords, Christ Jesus, our Lord. The first thing I want you to see in Matthew chapter 2, we see individuals who are seeking the king. They are magi. They are wise men from the east. More than likely, they were from Persia. They were Gentiles that were hired by the royal court to interpret dreams for the king and for the queen. They were entirely intellectuals, part of the cultural elite. But what makes it so shocking, just like everything else in the Gospel of Matthew so far, is they're Gentiles. Gentile astrologers and philosophers who are seeking who? The king of the Jews traveling over rocky and difficult terrain, risking their lives and their reputation, leaving their occupation and their royal post, all in search of the true king. But what's even more shocking is who's not seeking the king. The people in Jesus' own backyard, the, the religious establishment. You see, what Matthew is trying to do here is he's stirring the pot. Matthew is predominantly written to the Jewish people, and Matthew is saying to them, 
you have Gentile pagan philosophers risking their lives to search after this child who is born Christ, the King, and you, the religious establishment, you, those that know the truth, that know the prophecies, that know the word of God, you won't even travel five miles in search of the king. Unfortunately, it's a lot like the church today. We become very comfortable and very accustomed to our ways and the way that we do things. We become very accustomed to the point where this story of Christmas, even for some of us, we've heard it for so long, it seems to fall on deaf ears. And the reality that Jesus Christ has broke forth into this world, for some of us, maybe even for some of us here this morning or those sitting at home, we've just become numb to the reality of what Christmas means You see, the story of Christmas and what Matthew is trying to show us is that the guest list for the birthday party of Jesus is totally unexpected. You would never put Magi on the guest list. But isn't that the way of God? And isn't that the way of Jesus? That the guest list to the party, the birthday party of Jesus the King is nothing like the guest list we would create. And thanks be to God for that, because guess what? You would never be on it if it was not for the grace of God. If it was not for the grace of God, you or I would never be on the guest list to experience the good news of Jesus Christ. But for the grace of God, magi are invited. And so are we seeking the king. But we not only have individuals in Matthew chapter two that are seeking Christ the king, we have people that are opposing him as well. We see it in verse two and three and four. You see that Herod, King Herod, is manipulating the situation. He's trying to gather the chief priests and the scribes to figure out what to do about these men from the east who are searching after Christ the king. You see, here was the problem for King Herod. If Jesus is the king, then what does that make me? Herod was not too fond about the Magi coming seeking the king because it meant if Jesus is the king, then I'm no longer the king. And here's the reality. If we're honest, deep inside of each one of us lives a King Herod. And each one of us, if we're honest, resists at all cost giving our lives over to someone other than who? Ourselves. We like to be the king. And this, if you haven't learned already, is my kingdom. This is my domain. And I will call the shots and I will exist as if I am the king. No one, especially this man born the king of the Jews, no one tells me that I am not the king. We all deep down inside don't want a king because we revel in the fact that we can be the king of our lives. You don't believe me? How often and when was the last time that you actually consulted God on anything? 
I have people coming into my office all the time telling me of their grandiose plans for their lives and their future, their children and their marriage and their careers, and this is where we're going to retire, and this is what we're going to do. And I want to just simply say, when was the last time you actually spoke to God about that? When was the last time you took your dreams, your desires, your passions, your career, your wealth, your marriage, your children before the throne of God? I said it before and I'll say it again. Jesus is not your personal assistant. He is the king. And we treat him as if he's simply an assistant or as a consultant. And when he tries to intervene in our lives, what do we say? Get off my property. Listen to me. He is the king. And there is only one room for one king in your life and in this world. And it rightfully belongs to Jesus the Christ. I found this great quote a few weeks ago by the late John Stott, who was a British pastor and theologian. And this is what he said concerning Jesus and encountering him. He said, if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. First, they either hated him and wanted him killed. Second, they were afraid of him and wanted to run away. Or third, they were absolutely smitten with him and they tried to give their whole lives to him as their Lord and as their Savior. Listen to me. Jesus says, don't call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say. Every day we do things that are in open defiance to Jesus the King. That's why we need hearts that are quick to repent. Jesus is the King, and there is no room for any other. And if Jesus truly is the King that was born 2,000 years ago, the only ultimate response that will do is take my life and let it be. We see people who are seeking the King. We see people who are opposing the King. Lastly, we see people who are properly responding to this king. Back to the Magi or the wise men. At the end of the passage in verse 10, when they see the star continue to move, we see them in verse 11 and 12 properly respond to the king. And how do they respond? By bowing their knee and falling in worship. We are told in verse 11 that they bought their treasure. They brought their treasures to the king. Treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh given to Jesus the king. And then in verse 12, we see a picture of absolute submission. Remember, it, remember in context, Herod the king had told them to return back to him after they visited the Christ. But what does verse 12 told, tell us? That God intervened and gave them another message and said, do not go back to Herod. They had a choice. Do we listen to the earthly king or do we listen to the heavenly king? It is a picture of complete and utter submission. And it's something we need to take away from this morning, this message today from God's word. When the king speaks, we listen. When the king speaks, we do as we are told. When the king speaks, we will follow and obey. If Jesus is your king, 
I want to ask you, and it might be one of the most important questions you ask yourself today and tomorrow, what needs to change in your life if Jesus is truly the King? I want to encourage you today or tomorrow to ask that question and be honest. If Jesus is the King, what needs to change in my life? What needs to be surrendered? What needs to be reoriented in my life? What needs to drastically change in my life if it is true that Jesus is the king? Now, you might be here this morning and you might be new to Christianity or you might not know anything about God or Christmas or watching at home and saying, this is all over my head. Why in the world would I follow blindly Jesus the king? Why in the world would I surrender my life to him? There's only one reason. We later read in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews says this, that Jesus saw the cross and saw was at its stake, and he considered it pure joy. Listen to me. The only rational reason that we would surrender our kingship to Jesus the King is because Jesus looked at the cross and he saw you and he considered it pure joy. The king surrendered his life for you so that gladly in return we can surrender our lives to him. The story that begins in a manger ended at the cross where the star disappeared and there was utter darkness you see, every king, past, present, and future, says this to his subjects, lay down your lives for me and you will live. But this king says, I will lay my life down for you so that you can live forever. It sent the world into a tailspin 2,000 years ago, and it continues to do the same today that we can simply, with our jaw dropped, ask the question, what child is this? The world has never seen a quick king like King Jesus. Thomas Nelson was the governor of Virginia during the Revolutionary War. He was also the assigner of the Declaration of Independence. And during the Revolutionary War, the final battle of that war was, of course, the Battle of Yorktown in 1781. Thomas Nelson not only served as governor, but also served as a general of the colonial army. And during the Battle of Yorktown, Lord Cornwallis, who was the general of the military of the, Brit uh, of the British royalty, seized Yorktown and seized most of the homes in Yorktown, including Governor Thomas Nelson. But as Thomas Nelson was marching the colonial army into Yorktown, he points and he says, see that big house over there? The biggest house in Yorktown. Lord Cornwallis, General Cornwallis, has taken over that house along with all of the commanders of the British military I want you to fire on that house. And it also happens 
to be my house. We're told in history that he actually offered a reward to whoever would hit his house first. And he looked at the house, his house, and he said, open up the cannons. And they did just that. We're told that the first shots landed through the dining room window where the high command of the British military were seated, right there on the dining room table. It was shortly after that, we're told, that the British surrendered and the war was over. What is the lesson? The lesson of Thomas Nelson, the cost of freedom, tear down my house. Jesus said something very similar. You wanna find your life? You must first lose it. To give your life to the king means dying to yourself. It means tearing down your house, tearing down your kingdom, and tearing down your throne, and saying, God, you have sent your son to be the king of not only the world, but to be the king of my life. Thomas Nelson died a poor man, died with no money at all, and dying as a pauper, he said, I have no more material possessions, but to be free, I'm the wealthiest man on the face of this earth. To have Jesus means you have everything. Have you surrendered? Have you surrendered your life to the king? Why do we give our lives to this king and to this king alone? Because he's exchanged his crown for thorns and exchanged his throne for a cross. Would you give your life to this king? The gospel invitation to you this morning is simple. The good news of Christmas is not only are we now enabled to find the true king, but that this king has come down and found you and rescued you from darkness to life. The message of the gospel is simple. For all those who confess in Jesus Christ and believe in him, he gives them, God gives you the right to be called a child of God. If we declare this day that Jesus is Lord and believe it in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved now and forever. That is the good news of Christmas. That love came down in Jesus Christ. Love so amazing Love so divine, it demands my life, my soul, and my all.